Uh, my name is Pastor Joel Slater. I'm one of the, the pastors here at North Place Church, if you're new and you don't know who I am. And uh, we are part of the team here. Uh, but on behalf of our lead pastors, uh, Pastor Randy and Desra Freeman, uh, we want to say welcome. And they say welcome. They are currently in the United States. And they returned um, several weeks ago to the United States to raise funds to further the project of North Place Church and North Place Center. So they um, are in meetings. They are trying to get a little bit of refreshing after several years of, of again, establishing the church and moving us forward. And really, you know, they, they, it's such a gift to them to know that they can leave and the people of God, as you've seen here, I think, are making the church happen. It's not dependent on personality. It's not dependent on one person, but it's on the very presence of God that leads us forward. And I want to just tell you, you better enjoy this kind of like, as much as you want to get back in person service and you want to get back to the normal, you better enjoy kind of this time because when Pastor Randy comes back all refreshed and full of vision, oh boy, it's going to get busy, okay. So, so I'm just telling you, it's kind of a gift from God. Um, but they want to be here. Their hearts are here. They are working to get back. Um, but when they come back, it's going to be incredible because of uh, what God has placed in their hearts and what we are in for. So um, again, keep praying for them. But I want to encourage you to be here every single week. It's, it's just good to be in the house of God. Amen? It's just good to be in the house of God. And uh, if you are a detail person, if you, if you love details... Um, maybe some of the details that have been overlooked in this place are bothering you a little bit. You know, you see wires hanging, you see some things haven't been, you know, plastered or painted. And I'm just going to tell you, just, just relax and, and focus. Focus on the important thing, all right? Um, and speaking of focus, that's what we're going to be talking about. We're starting a new sermon series um, this week for seven weeks, and it's called Focus. And, you know, for those of you, again, are really tempted, hey, the wires are this or that, the little lights aren't blinking and all this and everything, we're going to invite you to, to really, we did this intentionally, so that you have, how, we would just challenge you to put into practice what we're preaching. We're talking about focus. And uh, I want to just kind of give you a, a helpful understanding of why it's so important to focus uh, on, and, and why we're going to be talking about um, this topic for the next seven weeks. Let me tell you a little story to get started here. Uh, in 1979, a passenger jet carrying 257 people left New Zealand on a sightseeing trip to the continent of Antarctica, southern part of the, you know, the world, um, barren ice, hardly anyone ever goes there. And so 257 people took a sightseeing flight to Antarctica. But unbeknownst to the pilots, uh, they, they didn't realize there was a minor two-degree error in the flight coordinates. And so what this did was... This placed the, the airplane 28 miles or about 30 kilometers um, to the east of where the pilots thought they were. Almost 30 kilometers from where they thought they were going to work. And as they approached Antarctica, the pilots descended to a lower altitude so that everyone could see the, the, the incredible expanse of this, this frozen wasteland, a, a land that hardly anyone would ever see. What an experience. But the problem was that although these pilots were both experienced, they had done similar things before, they had never made this particular flight before, so they were uh, somewhat in uncharted territory, and they had no way of knowing that the incorrect coordinates, just being two degrees off, off their bearing, would place them directly in the flight, in the flight path of Mount Erebus, an active volcano that rises from the frozen landscape to, uh, to an altitude of almost 3,700 meters. And sadly, the plane, because they were off course and they're at the low altitude, put them in the, the, in the perfect trajectory to crash into the side of this building, killing all 257 people. Now, why do I start out with a story like that? That's kind of a downer. 
right? It's kind of like, oh, it's kind of heavy. It's because of this. At the end of the day, we want you to come away with this idea as we talk about focus, that little things, little practices, little steps, little actions accumulated over a long period of time culminate in making a huge difference. It's the little things over a long period of time. Now, there are times where we, where we can lose focus. We, 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 we neglect our diet. Maybe where our doctor has said that you, you should eat a more healthy diet. And we, we, we cheat a little bit, right? Everyone needs a treat now and then. You know, and that's no big deal if we can get back on our diet. But if we neglect it for so long, we're going to have some long-term major ramifications, aren't we? It's the little things. More on a positive note, somebody told me in between services that there is an app called Sweatcoin. All right? Now, don't get out your phones yet and check it out. But Sweatcoin, and it, it actually pays you money to walk. All right? Now, it doesn't pay you a fortune. It doesn't pay you a ton of money. But if over a period of time, the more you walk, the more you make. Sweatcoin. All right? So a little advertisement there. You're all going to go check it out and everything. Because at the end of the day, what are you going to do? You're going to walk. Right? You're going to walk from here to there. So you might as well get paid for it. And it won't make you rich, but over time it accumulates. It's just another little example of little actions over a long period of time make a big difference. And that's why we want to talk about focus in this series today. Now let me define focus. Because if I did a survey, many people would say, well, how would you define focus? If you were a photographer, you know, focus has to do with your lens and what are you zeroing in on. Uh, there's all sorts of applications in different areas of focus. But I want us to be on the same page today. And I, what we're going to do, this whole this preaching series, myself and the, and the other pastors who are going to share with you from, from um, our text um, for these next seven weeks is this. We're going to talk define focus as following one course until successful. All right, following one course until it's successful. Now, success can be defined in so many different ways. And, and, then there's, and there's plenty of evidence to show that not, not everyone is going to be successful in everything they step out on. But what I really want to challenge you to do is to focus on one course until you're successful in, in terms of following Christ. In terms of your spiritual life. You know, someone reminded me in between services, they said, you know, in Matthew, you know, Jesus said, he says, you know, seek first the kingdom. And then all these things shall be added unto you. If you will seek God's kingdom and his priorities and his values and his priorities, then all these other things should take care of themselves in one way or the other. But you follow one course. You can't do anything. The, uh, human neuroscience says that no, that no one truly, even as much as they want to convince themselves, it can truly multitask. You know, you may do a whole bunch of things, but at the end of the day, how many of those things do you really get done really well? You, you do better when you do less. When you focus on one course until you're successful. And that's what we want to drive home today. I know from my personal life, I need to focus. It is hard to focus. I have four kids and a dog. All right? I mean, right there, it's, it's just hard to focus. When people are talking, the dog is barking and going crazy. It's just hard to focus. And you know what I'm talking about. Um, in the best of times, it's hard to focus. You have so many things clamoring for your attention. You have so many devices. You have your computer. You have your phone. You have, you have, you have uh, the, anyone and everything knocking on the door, knocking on the gate. It's just there's so much clamoring for your attention and your focus. And in these uncertain, tumultuous times where it seems that just when life is settling down, you know, we, we got through a lockdown and we were getting set up and we were, our numbers were returning here at the church and, and we were at the other building. And we were packing them in. And then, and then we decided, hey, we're going to move into a new building. And we were going to have, like, you know, plenty of space for everyone. And just when we got started, <laughs> lockdown. It's just like, oh, come on. Just give us a little time to break in the building. I mean, come on. But we see that, in, you know, just as when things get settled or you get settled, things get turned upside down. 
And it's easy to lose focus. It's easy to become despondent, discouraged, frustrated, and drift when you're t- weary, when you're worn out, and when you're at your wit's end. And maybe that's where you're at today. Maybe you have had a chronic health problem. And maybe, you know, it's something that you were born with, you didn't ask for, you didn't, you didn't seek out. But maybe, again, like, you know, kind of like that whole, that whole story, you kind of drifted, you kind of cheated, and you kind of said, well, I don't really believe what my doctor says, and so I'm going to kind of, you know, cheat on the side. And then over a course of time, you're like, ah, why did I do that? One way or the other, you might just, what's the point? What's the point of trying to be healthy? It's never going to change, right? Or maybe your relational tensions. You have tried to make peace with that person. You have tried to live at peace with that person. But there are just people that you're just never going to get along with, right? There are people that are just relational rocks in your shoe. Every time you get around them, it just causes a problem. And you just like, you know what, I'm just so sick and tired of even trying, trying to be a Christian, trying to be a, a brother, a sister, a husband, wife, you know, good son, good daughter. You can just be so frustrated and at your wit's end and say it's just not worth it. Or maybe, you know, your economic pressures are just, you're just ready to give up. And we see people, we're hearing about people all the time that because of the crushing economic devastation, they've lost not just a business, but several businesses, or they've lost their livelihood, they've lost their retirement, they've lost their property, they've lost, uh, and they just want to quit, sometimes to the extreme, and that is absolutely devastating, and they want to, they just have lost their focus. And maybe at the end of the day, it's just an uncertain future. You started out, whether you're a young person, you've matriculated, but now you're like, now what? The hope of a good future, the hope of a good education, maybe beyond your reach. Maybe, you know, what you wanted for your kids or what you wanted for your grandkids is now kind of lost. And, and maybe your own future is uncertain and, and you're, just, you're just ready to give up. You're just so frustrated, you have no idea where to put your hope. And it may be true that it may be impossible for you to make much more difference than you are already right now. But I will tell you that small adjustments... Small adjustments in what you focus on in the moment may not make a difference in the moment, but small adjustments on your focus accumulated over long term can make a big difference. Don't believe me? Let me tell you another story. They did an experiment and they invited people, I hope they paid them, but they invited people to to come to a room and hook themselves up to a machine and be shocked, endure electrical shocks. And the study wanted to see how much pain, how much discomfort um, a person could endure. And so they went through a whole list of people, and they just and different people have different uh, pain thresholds, don't they? I mean, some of you that are in the, the trade industries, you know, it's like you hit yourself, you cut yourself, you slash yourself, you puncture yourself, everything, and it's like, yeah, well, tomorrow's another day. You know, you just like, yeah, that's what happens. You drop something on your toe, ow, you know. But then there are some of us that you look at us cross-eyed, we wither and die, right? <laughs> you know, and, you know, it's like, yeah, it's such a horrible day. Well, did you have a horrible day or did you have a horrible 15 minutes that you milked all day? I mean, you know, different people have different pain thresholds, right? Right? And, and, at, the, and at the end of the day, it, it's like they wanted to see the different pain thresholds. And so different people, um, you know, could endure some a lot and some little. And then they decided to flip the script. And they brought everybody back and they said, okay, we're going to do it again. Now that's a miracle in of itself because why would anybody come back twice? Um, but they said, okay, but this time it's going to be different because when we hook you up to these electrical, uh, you know, connections and everything, we're going to give you a button in your hand. We're going to put a little button in your hand. And we're going to turn up the, the juice. We're going we're to increase the, the voltage. And, but at any point, when it just gets too much, you can push the button and it will immediately stop and your pain will be relieved. Oh, okay, well, that sounds good. And what they noticed, by putting that button in everyone's single's hand, everyone's pain threshold went up. Every person, even the person that endured the very least, were able to endure a whole lot more. Why? Because they were given a focus of hope. 
Now let me tell you the rest of the story. That button was worthless. That button wasn't connected to anything. It was a little piece of plastic. It was, they probably bought it at, at, the, at, the, the, you know, at the, the pick and pay. I mean, it's just like for, in the toy section. And they just said it, was, it wasn't connected to anything. It wouldn't do anything. But the point is, their focus allowed them to endure way more than they ever thought possible and what they could do on their own. It's all about focus. And throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, Scripture is full of exhortations regarding focus. Let me just give you a few. Proverbs 4.25, wisdom for life. It says this. It says, let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. That's good advice. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews, if you understand it correctly, it's a group of people that were following Jesus, but then they went through incredible persecution, and, and, and they got through it, and they stood, and they endured, but then the circumstances of the society kind of changed, and they were kind of normalized, and persecution kind of, you know, eased off, and they went about their daily life. But then a new emperor came, and persecution began to ramp up again, and they thought, I'm too tired. I can't do this again. And I'm thinking about walking away from my faith. It's not worth it. I did it once. Wasn't that enough? It's just getting too hard, and, and I, just, I just think I'm going to go back to the old ways because at least I won't suffer as much. And the author of Hebrews, knowing this, challenges them, saying, no, 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 no. Don't lose your focus. It says, fixing our eyes on Jesus. The pioneer, some versions say the author and the finisher, the pioneer and the perfecter of faith, for the joy set before him, for the joy set before him, what did he do? He endured the cross, scorning its shame, and then he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He kept his focus. Jesus was not one who did not endure. He, the Bible says he endured everything we have endured, but without sin. He didn't cheat. He didn't cut corners. He didn't get out of it. He didn't exempt himself. He suffered, and yet he kept his focus, and that allowed him not to get over, not to get around, but to get through the hard times and then look what happened. He sat down at the throne of God. And then Colossians says, challenges us, set your minds on things above, not earthly things. If you're focused on your physical health, if you're focused on your financial matters, if you're focused on, on your relational aspirations, if you're focused on you know, your future and your, your goals, and your, that, those are all good. There's nothing bad about them. Let me just, there's nothing bad about them in themselves. But if those become your life, if those become your, 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 your point for living, you will, you will struggle. You will struggle enormously. We're called to set our minds things on things that will last. All this is going to fall away. If you believe what the Bible says, all this is going to go away. You're not going to take anything up with you. And if you're jealous of the person that has, well, guess what? They better get ready because they may not have in the next life. We don't know. But we do know that we are called to set our minds on, on heavenly things. And perhaps there's never been a more difficult time in history, at least our history, to focus. There's the pandemic that pervades every single aspect of our society, isn't it? It's affecting whether or not you go to school. It's affecting where you work. It's affecting, you know, your income. It's affecting your travel. It's affecting anything and everything. It's affecting the economy, your economy. I mean, I can't believe how many people I've said have lost businesses or they lost, they, they've, they've lost their livelihood and it just is consuming them. It's so hard to focus when this is pressing on you. Current affairs. I, somebody was asking me, we were in the United States when, when what happened in July occurred. And he says, what did you think about it? And I said, and I said you know what, I, could, I didn't know what to think about it. I couldn't make sense of it. All I could think about is I had friends and we have family in here, here that we can't get to and they can't get to us and you can't go anywhere. And it's just current affairs. And if you look at what's going on in Afghanistan and here or there, you would think the, the, it's coming to an end, folks, if I focus on it. But at the end of the day, you know what? Those aren't the only things. Those are the big things. But then we, 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 
we, there's self-inflicted struggles with focus. And it's in your pocket or in your hand right now, your smartphone. And how many times do we get pulled away from that and our, and our focus is off? It's the little things, it's the big things. But at the end of the day, although all these distractions are significant, they're not unusual. There have been pandemics throughout the course of human history. There has been economic upheaval in the short term and the long term. Their current affairs are always pointing. For 2,000 years, we have been pointing to the end. And the earth has been groaning with birth pangs, signaling the end. But at the end of the day, there was a man who recognized all this and said, you know what? Even though all of these things are clamoring for our focus, those aren't the things that matter. He wanted to call our focus back to what was most important. And that's why we want to look at the book of John today. We're going to spend seven weeks in the book of John. And John the Apostle wanted us to address the need to focus not on our circumstances, but on Christ, on Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Let me give you a little background so you can appreciate where we're going to take you in the book of John. Because if you don't understand the background, then the rest of John is just a bunch of stories. But you need to understand that the book of John was addressed to a group of people that had an understanding of God, but their understanding of God was incredibly ambiguous and incredibly vague. And that right there can cause us to drift. He was talking to an audience that believed the universe was, 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 was endued and en encompassed by the Logos, the ultimate reason. They looked at the world and said, you know, something causes the, the sun to rise and set on a regular basis. Something causes the, the, the tides to continually roll um, without, without ever stopping. There's, there's some kind of order and reason that governs the universe, but they, but they didn't identify as a person, they would call it something um, that we in our modern day have embraced in culture as the force. You heard of the force? Very popular in science fiction movies, the force. It, it surrounds all things, it binds all things, it, it, you know, it, it, you know, it does this, it does that, it's the force. I think the guy who did the Star Wars movies, he, I think he stole it from the book of John. All right, This idea, that this, but, but it, the problem with the force is that it's very vague. The problem with the force is that it allows you to fill in the blanks as you would like them. It allows you to define God as the way you want to, and that causes a lot of conflict because now who's to say my version of God is better than your version of God? And so that's a very problematic, and it causes us to drift. That's what causes cults to form. That's what causes heresies to be developed and everything, is that when we allow just a couple of degrees to allow us to drift from who God really is. And in, in, in these people that embraced this idea of reason, of the Logos, did not see God as personal. And they didn't understand, as we would understand God, as a person to be worshipped. But John, having this concern and seeing the need to focus, in this area especially, is cutting across the fundamental social uh, understanding of God's. And they believed in gods. They believed in multiple gods. The problem is that these gods were not gods you wanted to serve. These were gods that knew that you, they didn't love you. They didn't care about you. Basically, the best you could hope for was keeping them happy so they didn't smite you. That's not a relationship, folks. And at the very least, that's abusive. But they didn't see the gods as caring. They thought at the very best, they were detached. And they were maybe, maybe they regarded your struggles and your heartaches and your joys and your fears as, as simply as just kind of whimsical, well, that's just the way it is. Is that the kind of God you would want to serve? Is that the kind of God that would draw you close and draw your heart? 
But John says there's a different God. John says don't lose focus, but focus instead on a God so involved, so caring, so loving, so giving, that he literally chose to step out of his perfect world, step into our imperfect world, live amongst us, show us the way, and give us hope. That's the kind of God that I would want to focus on. William Barclay summarized it well when he said, John spoke to a world which thought of the gods in terms of passionless apathy and serene detachment. They didn't care about you. But instead, he pointed at Jesus Christ and he said, here is the mind of God. Here is the expression of the thought of God. Here is the logos. Here is the word, the final word. And men were confronted with a God who cared so passionately and who loved so sacrificially that his expression was Jesus Christ and his emblem was a suffering cross. That's the God that loves you. That's the God that's calling you to focus on him today. That's what the book of John was motivated to do. Now the book of John was also called the book of the seven signs. And we're going to look at that because John wanted to give his audience rock solid evidence that they would be confident in who they were being, they were to focus on. And our key verse that you're going to see us refer to constantly is our foundation verse for this entire series. The motivation for why we really want to look at focus is found in John, at the very end of the book, John 20, he summarized it. It's like the thesis statement. You know, when you were in school, you had to write a thesis statement that, that was the crux of your whole paper. This is the thesis statement of the book of John. It says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of disciples which are not recorded in this book. In other words, the signs that we're going to look at in the book of John are not the only signs, but are the ones that John felt would summarize and support his thesis best. But there's plenty of other evidence that we could look at. They're just not mentioned in this book. But he performed these signs that were not recorded in this book, but these are written. These signs, these seven signs that we're going to look at starting today are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You see, there's the ultimate outcome of your belief. It's not simply to acknowledge that there is a God. Good for you. The scripture says the demons believe there's a God and they shudder. It's no big deal. It doesn't change anything. God can be anything you want. But to believe in Jesus, he is the Messiah. He is the one that has come. He is the Son of God. And by believing in him, you may have eternal life. It's not enough to acknowledge there just is a God. He's up there. But what do you do with it? That's what we want to focus on. And thanks to Jesus, if you don't remember anything else from this series or today, remember this. Thanks to Jesus, our faith is not based on our feelings. It's not based on how you came in today. It's not your circumstances today. It's not whether what he did or what he did not do for you today is the determinator. But no, your faith is not based ultimately on feelings. All those, are, those count and those should be looked at but not let you def be defined by them. But your faith is not based on your feelings but ultimately on focusing on the facts. Going back to the facts of who Jesus is, we want to focus. And so here is where I want to start today. Here's some general facts that, about all of us. No matter where we come from, no matter what walk of life, our education, our ethnic, ethnicity, our economic status, no matter what, we tend not to believe in something spontaneously. Someone tells us something, we don't just necessarily believe it, right? If someone tells you you should buy a car, a certain car, I don't know how anybody that's really wise like, oh yeah, I'll go, I'll go buy that car. You would do your research, wouldn't you? Is that the best car for you? Is it reliable? Is it affordable? Is it sustainable? You would do research, wouldn't you? We believe based on evidence so often, don't we? We believe on what we see, the evidence. But we also believe in the person delivering the information, right? 
I don't want to take information or advice on my marriage from someone who's been married three times. It's like, well, I've tried many things, and now I finally found something that works. No, I want to find advice and take advice from, on marriage from someone who's had a 50-year marriage and is loving them more then now than they did then, right? I don't want to take health advice from someone who, who is, you know, knows, has been in the hospital so much, they might as well be a doctor because they've undergone so many medical tests, they could do it themselves, right? Well, I know all about medicine because I'm in the hospital all the time. No, 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 I want to know someone who, who, who's found a way to get out of it, Right? We, we, take, we believe based on evidence, we believe, believe based on the endorsement or the credibility of the person delivering the information. The problem is, and why do I bring this up? Because religious faith and belief are often divorced from reason. And oftentimes we're encouraged just to believe. Someone will approach you with a faith pro- a proposal. Believe in this. You don't have to believe just because. Maybe some of you are here and wounded because you had questions about God, you had questions about faith, you had questions about miracles, you had questions about situation circumstances, and all you were told to do is simply believe. You were shut down. That's having a devastating impact on our young people today who have access to more information than we ever had of the older generation. And so they see things that are going on, they're told to believe in a God that loves them, but then they see all the pain and suffering in the world, and they aren't even allowed to ask the questions, and they're just told to believe. Without, ever, ever, without any explanation and walking them through the why behind the what. Know anybody like that? Come on. There's a, there's a, there's a guy who, who literally goes toe-to-toe with people such as this who make these arguments. And he talks about this. He goes, the reason so many people are talked out of Christianity and it's rising among our young people is because they were never talked into Christianity in the first place. They were just told to believe. And you know what? It's okay to believe. But you know what? There is so much to believe in. Jesus was not content, excuse me, John was not content just to tell us what happened. He wasn't just content to tell us a series of stories. This happened, this happened, this happened. But he wanted to tell you why it happened and why he wanted us to know that it happened. What is the difference? You see, life is like a camera. Why do I say that? Because when you focus on what's important, you will capture it perfectly. And I want you to focus on Jesus. Jesus is not God for little kids. I grew up in church, and I will admit that for a long time, I kind of thought, well, Jesus is kind of entry-level God. It's the God that kids can understand, so they're not so scared of the big God. And can I just tell you, oh, boy, did I miss out. Because when I focus on Jesus, I see God so clearly. I see the character of God. I see the nature of God. I see the purpose of God. I see the power of God. I see the presence of God so, so much more clearly. And so let, your, let your, the camera of your life focus on Jesus today for a few moments. John identifies seven signs. I'm giving you a lot of background so the, the, the pastors that follow me don't have to spend time on that. But it's so crucial to create the framework and allow us to focus on what John is doing. And he identifies seven key supernatural events, what he calls signs. You may call them miracles, you might call them other things. But, they're, but he uses these seven signs as excellent proof of Jesus being who he said he was, the Son of God. Now, contrary to what we want to believe, maybe our traditions pull us into, these signs were not random acts of kindness. So, so many times we want to make Jesus simply an example of social justice. And Jesus went about doing good. And the Bible says he did that. But these signs were not simply things to show that he was a nice guy. Not only. Don't limit it to that. Furthermore, he wasn't just showing off his power. He's not just, look what I can do. But he was using these signs that pointed specifically about his identity. 
And this is where you got to key on, to focus on who he is. What does this say about Jesus? And let this be a foundation stone of where you put your faith. Because it's easy to get distracted by the miracles. It's easy to get distracted and focus on the miracles, but we have to focus on their purpose. So many times somebody would come to Jesus and say, do a miracle. Do a miracle. I want to see a miracle. I believe in miracles. I've seen more miracles in Africa than anywhere else in the world. I have seen the blind see. I have seen the deaf hear. I have seen the lame walk. And I have seen the dead rise in Africa. And those are incredible. But so often, some of us will lose our focus because God didn't do a miracle when I want him to do a miracle. And why doesn't he do a miracle? Why doesn't he prove himself? And Jesus himself said, I'm not going to always do a miracle. He was hanging on a cross. He was dying on the cross. He was fulfilling his purpose and then said, do a miracle. Come down. Then we'll believe in you. And he wouldn't even do that. Because that wasn't what was important. So often we get fixated on the miracles. But what do the miracles say about his identity? Don't get enamored with the miracles. I'm not saying dispel them or disbelieve in them. But don't get enamored with them to the point that you don't aren't enamored with the person that the miracles point to. So let's look at our text. John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. And before I move on, it says, this is very interesting. John is doing something, don't miss this and everything. He is giving you so, such specific details that you cannot doubt that this actually happened. There was another Cana in Judea. But he's saying, that's not that Cana. I'm not talking ambiguously. It didn't just once upon a time. This happened in a place that you can go back to. The people who read this originally could go back to people who lived there and say, did this happen? Really, did this happen? And they would say, yes, it did. They can corroborate the evidence. This is, not a, this is not an anecdote. This is not a metaphor. This is not a fable. This actually happened. And John is setting the tone. I'm telling you exactly where it is. Small town. Everyone gossips. Everybody talks. Everybody knows. Everybody else is in each other's business, aren't they? So you can verify whether it's true or not. And he says, on the third day, a wedding took place in Cana. Jesus' mother was already there. Okay, so she may have been a friend of the family. And Jesus' disciples had also been invited to the wedding. All right, so they're going to a party. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now, I'll be honest, maybe you're like me. I read this and I go, that's not exactly how I'm going to make my, my, my debut on the world stage, right? Go to a wedding and the first problem you hand me is wine. If I go to a wedding as a guest, not my problem, okay? Not my problem. They weren't asked to bring something. They weren't asked to provide something. They weren't asked to participate in any way. And yet, for some strange reason, when the problem arose, there is no more wine, you know, it could have been wedding cake, it could have been, you know, uh, water. I don't know what you have at your wedding, what you want at your wedding, what you didn't have at your wedding, you know. But at the end of the day, if that was your wedding and my daughter's here today, someday she wants to get married and everything, honey, you know how I would feel if something you wanted at your wedding wasn't there, right? You would know how, how you, you'd be, it would be kind of a crisis. And so Mary comes to him and says, there is no more wine. Now, the funny thing is, is that somehow, why would Mary come to Jesus? He's not in charge of the wedding. He's a guest. Why would, he come, why would she come to him? I, I think it's this. I'm just going to throw it out there. I think intuitively she knew Jesus was someone she could go to in a crisis. Why would she know that? Well, it's not because she was a proud mama. Not necessarily. I mean, you know, you moms, you're proud of your kids. Your kids you know, are wonderful. But you also know your kids better than anyone, right? You know what your kids can do and what your kids can't do. I don't think it was just because she was a proud mama. And I don't think it's just because Jesus had a prominent role. I mean, it's normal. If you come to a pastor during a church service, well, the pastor's like, it's not my problem. You know, yeah, it is your problem. That's your job, right? You go to any person at this event who's in charge, that would be your problem. But Jesus isn't in charge. And yet she comes to him 
it has to be something else. And I think it's this, because she had seen, seen too many things in his life to assume he was ordinary. This was Mary. He was, she was there when he was born. She remembered the Annunciation, right? This baby born in a major, but angels announced his birth to shepherds who came and they went around telling everyone about what had happened. This was the baby. A few months later, three, three wise men show up and unpack gifts only designated to royalty, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Too many things had happened. Eight days after he was born, they brought him to the temple. And not one, but two people prophesied over him, saying that he's going to be someone great. This is the one that God has sent. But also, Mary, this baby has been born to die. Sooner or later, something's going to happen, and it's going to drive a sword through your heart, Mary. This baby was born to die for the sins of the world. Not something a new mother is going to forget, right? And yet all these things, the Bible says, she pondered in her heart. And she began to realize there's something special about my son. There's something special more than any other son. And he is someone that I can come to in a crisis. And that's, that's really flattering, isn't it? But then Jesus answers in a strange way. He says in the next verse, he says, Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. Now, for the young people in the room, don't ever respond to your mom like this. Okay? And don't say, don't say well, Jesus, Jesus talked that way. All right? But let me, let me disarm it a little bit. This is not, this is not disrespectful. This is not, uh, you know, any way translated to be impatient. The best we can kind of come up with that really fits the, the, the spirit of it is dear lady. He smiled and he said, and he just could have said, mom, mom, not my time, not my time. So why would even John even mention this? Because John is documenting this response to show Jesus' focus. What was Jesus' focus? It's part of the larger theme that Jesus was focused on the will of his heavenly father and not on the agenda of any human being, even his family. That is so tough. We are focused on our agenda. We are focused on our privilege, our, our priorities. How come, Jesus, you don't deal with this? How come, Jesus, you don't do with this? How come you don't? If Jesus wouldn't even jump at his mother's suggestion, come on, honestly, we're a little bit further down the chain, you know, hereditary-wise, but at the end of the day... Jesus was focused on the agenda of his heavenly father. And maybe we can interpret Jesus' words in contemporary language saying, Mom, you got to realize I came to save the world, not a wedding. Not really, really my point, my, my focus point at this point. But the funny thing is, it's not so much Jesus says because I get that, stepping back, you know, I can understand. But the funny thing is what Mary responds at. She doesn't get into a huff. She doesn't get upset. She doesn't get frustrated. She doesn't get angry and resentful and demand her rights as a mother, what does she do? She simply pivots and she says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Why is that significant? Because at the end of the day, what it shows is she's going to submit to his will and his way. She's going to trust that he's going to take the initiative and he's going to deal with it his way. She was like, you know what, son? I don't need to tell you what to do. I don't need to tell you how to do it. I'm just going to trust in who you are and I'm going to focus on that. And you've got this. You'll take care of it in, in the right way. And Mary gives us such a model, folks, gives us such a model for our focus, doesn't she? She says no longer is she making suggestions to God about having it, but she's just leaving everything in his hands. These words are timeless. It's like, oh, if we could just be like her and say, you know what, I'm just not going to focus on the how, I'm going to focus on the who. And going on, it says, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. That's a very significant um, detail 
These were not little jars of water, but these were huge containers that you had to walk by before you got into the house. You had to deal with the washing before you would enter in into the wedding. And why is this mentioned? Why would John even care about this detail? Because John is trying to use something that these people had always known, had grown up with, had fashioned their entire culture around to show that something that was soon to be replaced and point to something that would be put in its place. Something that you've known all along, the covenant, the promise that someday Messiah would come. Someday things would be made right. Someday things would be restored and turned from the ordinary to the extraordinary was now about to begin. Jesus said to the servants in verse 7, fill the jars with water and they filled them to the brim. F.F. Bruce, the, the theologian, said the water provided for purification is laid down by Jewish law and custom stands for the whole ancient order of Jewish ceremony, which Christ was about to replace with something better. No longer were used to be satisfied with, with regulation, with ceremony, with doing this in order to access God. But now something, it was no longer time to wash and to work. But now it was about the time to enjoy the goodness of God. Verse 8, and then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And here, and just, just hold on to me for one minute. And so they did so. It's really remarkable. It's like, do you realize what just happened? You had water, washing water for your hands and your feet, and now you want to serve it up as a drink. Check the coffee. What kind of water do we use to make the coffee that you're drinking? Have you asked that question? Think about that. Just put it in, put it in, your, in your life application for a minute. But they did it. They did what Jesus told them to do. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from. He didn't, have any, he didn't even think about the source. He didn't think it was really miraculous. He just tasted it. And though the servants had drawn the water knew, they knew the background. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone who brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. In other words, you roll out the good stuff, but then when everybody's drunk and inebriated and can't tell the difference, they've lost their focus on what, what is real, what is the good stuff, then you give them the, the has-beens, you give them the, the cast-offs. But you... You have saved the best until now. This story provides so many opportunities for great discipleship models. Like how do you be a disciple? It's so, it's so great. But the main point is that it reveals Jesus' glory. It re re reveals the glory of Jesus. It does a lot by just simply revealing his identity that was foretold by the Old Testament. If you look, go back and look at the stories of Elijah... In Elisha, they did similar things where they took the ordinary and not only made it extraordinary, but they made it that it would not run out. Remember the oil and the wine? It provided for the widow and her two sons. Miraculously, it would not run out. But more specifically, the Jews saw this as the promise of restoration. Instead of being people that are burdened by enslavement to an oppressive government. In order, in other, in, instead of being people who had once had a glorious past, but now they had an incredibly oppressive present. He's saying the good times are about to roll. But more specifically, it's this idea. It was a sign. It was a sign of who he was. It was an announcement. Woman, my time has not yet come. Okay, I'll do it anyway. Let's get started. The Son of God has arrived. The Messiah you've been waiting for. The promise has come. The fulfillment is here. And what came before was simply a picture of the promise that's now being fulfilled in our sight. Verse 11 says, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first 
was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed. In other words, they put their trust in him. They didn't just believe him. They didn't say, yeah, I'm, I'm sure that happened. But they formulated their entire life around that. The other gospels say that they, they dropped everything that they had. Their livelihood, their job, their businesses, their families, and followed him. They followed him through his entire ministry. And then they followed him. Ultimately, after a few stumbles and failures, they followed him to their death because they knew he was worth it. He should be their focus. The effect of this sign on the disciples in contrast to the experience of those who most directly benefited. Think about that. The master ceremonies, even the bridegroom himself, they didn't know who Jesus, what Jesus did. They didn't give Jesus the credit. Jesus kept a very low profile. But how often is that with us? God's grace constantly surrounds us. His love is constantly active in our lives. Yet often we fail. We don't discern his love. We don't recognize the miracles. So often we're focused on what he didn't do for us and we forget what he did do for us. And we lose our focus. Sometimes we have an excuse, but most of the time we don't. These disciples believe because of what they saw. They saw it, they didn't really know what to do with it, but they kept watching and ultimately they put their faith in him. Sometimes people come to faith by what they see. Most of the time people come to faith by what they hear. But we're also invited to put our faith in what happened, reported by the people that stake their very lives upon it. Focus. They believe because they had a reason to believe. And that's where we want to begin. Let's focus. I'm going to invite our, 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 our musicians to come up for a moment. And I want you to think about that. I want you to focus on two things for the moment. First of all, focus on what steals your focus. What have you been allowing yourself to focus on? I'm not saying it's not important. I'm not saying that it's not necessary. I'm not saying to completely be irresponsible. But what I am inviting you to think about is what, what shakes you? What unnerves you? What unsettles you? And what steals your focus off of Jesus? We're going to run through seven different signs. And they all testify to a point of Jesus' identity. And we hope by doing this, it's going to build your faith. In this first sign, we're seeing that, you know what, things that are so common, and maybe, maybe in this time of the pandemic, lockdown, doing church online, maybe your faith has grown a little cold. Maybe it's a little stagnant. I mean, just being in, the, just being in, in a live worship service with live musicians, there's just something you got. I mean, that, that, that alone tells us we need to be gathered in person. There's just something different about it. But maybe your faith has grown cold. Maybe, maybe your walk with Jesus has become, maybe it's become too familiar and too stagnant and, you, and you're drifting. And in the moment, we all do. But that's not what we want to do long term, is it? And maybe today you're just reminded of the glory of God. Maybe your life is like water. Maybe, maybe you feel like your life is just half-filled containers of water. It's nothing special. It's nothing significant. It's certainly not abundant. 
I tell you that Jesus is coming? And he wants to move in your life today. Your circumstances may not change, but oh, I want you to be filled with new wine. I want you to be focused on Jesus so that it changes everything you say. Wow, the King has come. The Lord has come. The Lord is in this place. Just like we sung. And turn your focus on Jesus because your faith is not built and stands and rests and depends upon your feelings. Your faith is based and focused on the facts of who Jesus is. Let's pray today and commit ourselves to a new focus. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for every step of the way you set up this service today, inviting us, Lord, into your presence and reminding us who you are. And Holy Spirit, I pray today as you challenge us to focus upon you, the author and the finisher of our faith, I pray that everything else that comes to steal our focus would not have the effect that it's had in the past. I pray that we would recognize when we're a few degrees off course and that we would get back on course a lot sooner than maybe we have allowed ourselves in the past. Help us to focus on you, Jesus. Help us to focus on what matters. Help us to focus on one course until we successfully hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter into your reward. Ah, may we just keep that in focus today. May it keep us going today. May it build us up today. And we ask for your help in this, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. God bless you.